All right, well, today is Palm Sunday, and um, just a, a little quiz here for those of you Sunday school types who, who grew up in, in a church. Let's see if you um, know these simple questions about Palm Sunday. If you haven't grown up in the church, you're going to think, what is Palm Sunday? And you're going to find out today. So uh, Palm Sunday is about Jesus riding into which city? Jerusalem on a donkey. What was being waved in the air? Palms. And what was thrown on the ground? Hey, clothes, cloaks. All right, good. You got the four basics down. Now, the reason why we started with that little quiz is because it's a very common and familiar story. In fact, uh, one of the frustrating things about being a, a pastor sometimes is that you have to tell some of the same stories over and over. And so, you know, uh, that does kind of get repetitive, um, especially for those who attend and maybe have grown up in Sunday school. You hear the same stories over and over, and it kind of loses its punch a little bit, and you can sort of, uh, you know, lip sync the sermon right along with us. But I'm going to tell you something about Palm Sunday that um, I don't think you have thought about before. It's just my guess. I could be wrong. Uh, it, it's a whole new look at Palm Sunday, and I think it's the right look based on what we see in the Bible, Luke chapter 19. So here's our look at Palm Sunday. It's my conviction that Palm Sunday was a well-orchestrated political protest. Well-orchestrated political protest. Now, if you've heard the story a bunch, you might not have connected Palm Sunday with a well-orchestrated political protest. In your mind, you know, it might be Jesus coming in sort of innocently in Jerusalem and a mob sort of gets caught up in the wonder of him coming into Jerusalem and they start sort of an impromptu praise of Jesus waving palm branches and throwing their clothes on the ground. And it's a nice quaint story. I think that loses the edge that is intended with Palm Sunday. And I think we need to look at it as a well-orchestrated political protest, which could be a little uncomfortable for us to think of it in that way. Not just the event, but Jesus. Some of us will have a hard time thinking of Jesus as a political protester. But I think that's precisely what's happening. And if we see that that's what's happening in Palm Sunday, we'll know more about the event, we'll know more about the Easter week, and we'll know more about Jesus. And at the end, we'll see that we'll know more about our place in his kingdom. Now, political protests have been a part of life for quite some time in the West, particularly about 500 years we've been doing political protests. And, and political protests have a very important place in society. Sometimes, you know, government systems and structures, you know, the man sort of, you know, gets in this, uh, this situation of being power hungry and maybe oppressing other people or, or, or putting down other people for their own power, their own prominence, their own prosperity. Uh, governments tend to be corrupt over time. That's just the way it is. And so sometimes protests from the people are necessary. Now, over the past three or four years, there's been a lot of protests in the United States of America. It kind of comes in waves, and this is a wave of protests. And there's a lot of good reasons why. There are some things in government that need to be tweaked every once in a while, and, and so sometimes our voice has to be heard. But some people are getting a little weary of the protests, and so a counter-protest movement has started with some very creative signs. And I want to show you some of those signs. I want more tortillas when I order fajitas at restaurants. Is that a cause you might want to get involved in? This is one I would definitely sign up for, yeah. You can pry my apostrophe from my cold dead hands. If you know English, you know why that's so funny. Here's, speaking of English, if you're going to make English America's official language, you might want to learn how to spell official. And if you're going to um, call somebody a moron, you better know how to spell moron. Now, when I found out Jesus was a refugee, I got all on board with the refugee issue. But when I found Superman was a refugee, I thought, now I'm really engaged in this uh, program. Uh, Muslims are taking a new step in their protest. We gave you hummus, so have some respect. <laughs> That's clever. 
This is my favorite. What do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? It's irrelevant. <laughs> I found that funny myself. This is kind of the nature of protest. You just, you know, blame other people for everything. It's kind of funny. <laughs> That's amusing to me. This guy's very angry, very angry man about his arms being tired. I would show up for that and be disappointed if it wasn't there. <laughs> this was my favorite. A lot of things are actually going pretty well. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if there was a million-person march on Washington and everybody said, hey, things aren't too bad, really, when you think about it. Anyhow, so this is, uh, this is the counter-protest movement, just having some fun with this idea. Uh, but in seriousness, uh, sometimes protests are very important to move some very serious things forward, and it's appropriate. Uh, in fact, if you look at the history, really, of Western civilization, a lot of Western civilization was built on protest. And we can go back 500 years, really exactly 500 years, to the Protestant Rebellion of 1517. The Protestant Rebellion of 1517, this is when uh, Martin Luther uh, posted the 95 Thesis on the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. He laid out why the Catholic Church was corrupt, 95 reasons. Now, the goal was to reform the Catholic Church. They didn't want reforming, so there was a split. And there's the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church, and we're a part of the Protestant Church movement. We're actually a Reformed Church, and we have our heritage back 500 years to that very day. Um, now, the Catholic Church since has reformed in a lot of important ways as well, all by a protest movement. You go to the Boston Tea Party of 1773. You know what that is? If you don't know what that is, we have to really, you know, pray for our school systems. 1773, American colonists um, boarded three ships in the middle, middle of the night, British ships, dumped tea overboard in protest of British taxation. That was unfair. There's the storming of the Bastille, 1789. Parisians stormed the Bastille, beheaded the governor, and took over the prison to start the French Revolution. Uh, in more modern times, there was Gandhi's Salt March of 1930. Uh, India was under British rule, and uh, Mahatma Gandhi started a nonviolent protest, walked several hundred miles to pick up his own salt from the Indian shore, which was against British law, threw him and thousands of others in jail, uh, started a global movement that was sympathetic towards India being an independent uh, state, and that's what happened shortly thereafter. Then there's the mar March on Washington in our own borders, August 28, 1963. This is the famous I Have a Dream speech from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and, uh, and really was the primary cause for JFK signing the Civil Rights Act. There's the Berlin Wall protest. Now, I vividly remember this. I was just out of high school, and um, the Soviet Union, which was the great enemy of the United States of America all throughout my youth, including through high school, uh, it disintegrated right before our eyes in the late 80s and early 90s. And when we saw that Berlin Wall fall, uniting East Germany with West Germany, and then the entire fall of the Soviet Union. It was quite an amazing thing to watch. Then in our uh, own times, there is the protest in Syria against al-Bashar. It started in 2011. This is the city of Homs. That city is now completely decimated because as a result of this protest, uh, al-Bashar started an incredibly brutal counteroffensive against the protesters which has resulted in a bloody civil war in Syria that lasts to this day. Upwards of half a million Syrians have been slaughtered as a result. Just last week, a couple weeks ago, a chemical attack, another chemical attack, killed over 100 people, including children, infants. And uh, so this is ongoing. Uh, but the intent of the protest was to gain their freedom and self-rule and self-governance. But uh, the uh, uh, tyranny has 
a very violent way of reacting to those things. But in order to move forward, um, the, the human right of freedom and dignity and personal rights, sometimes it takes protesting. Now, I'm putting Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago in this category. Palm Sunday, I believe, was the most effective public political rebellion in human history. And we're still a part of that right now. The reason why we are here right now, this very day, this very service, is because Jesus was engaged in a very calculated, very intentional political rebellion, which started a movement of freedom which lasts till this day. And we are celebrating Christ and enjoying our freedom as a result of what Jesus did on that Palm Sunday, the Sunday before his Friday crucifixion, the Sunday before the next Sunday's resurrection. So let's talk about a rebellion. Let's talk about a political rebellion. First of all, in any political rebellion, there's a cause. The cause has to be very, very clear. Every single one of the political rebellions we detailed up on the screen here today had a very specific cause that was transmittable, that was repeatable, that was easy to understand, that rallies people around this cause. So for Jesus, the cause was very clear. In fact, the reason why the life and ministry of Jesus was so compelling is because his cause was so clear and his cause uh, touched a chord in, in, in humanity that, that needed to be touched because there was such an oppression that was ruling the day during the time of Christ. There was oppression on two fronts. Number one, there was religious oppression. The people of uh, Israel at the time were oppressed by their own religious leaders. And by the way, this is normal. It is very normal for religious leaders to oppress their followers. Some people do it intentionally, as was the case during the time of Christ. Some do it unintentionally. They were unintentionally oppressed religiously when they were growing up, and so religious leaders unintentionally oppress others in their congregations. Religious oppression is essentially a culture of guilt, fear, shame, and condemnation. Most religious environments are driven by that. You're not good enough. God is unhappy with you. You sin against God, you're gonna get judged. Uh, you perform well for God, you will be blessed. He'll answer your prayers and you'll earn eternal life. That's just normal standard religion. It happens in a lot of Christian churches as well. It is horrible, it's the enemy of Jesus Christ. It's religious oppression. Now during the time of Christ, the Jewish religious leaders were particularly corrupt because it was intentional. The Jewish religious leaders made a deal with the Roman Empire. Keep in mind the Roman Empire had spread across Israel. Rome was ruling as an occupying force over Israel, and Rome wanted peace. More than anything, Rome wanted peace. In fact, uh, one of their uh, famous phrases included the word pax, or peace. They wanted peace inside their borders. Why? Because they wanted to expand their borders. And if there was any rebellion in their borders, they had to focus their troops internally when they wanted to fo focus their troops externally. And so they made deals with local authorities that they had conquered. We'll give you money, we'll give you power if you keep your people under your thumb. And in order to do that to the Jewish people, they knew they had to make a deal with religious leaders because the Jews were religiously focused. And so as long as the religious leaders got money and power from Rome, they would then oppress their own people in the name of God and using God's word to do it. Essentially saying you're never gonna be good enough, you're never gonna rise above your poverty, you're never gonna rise above your sickness, you're never gonna rise above this injustice, we're gonna keep you under our religious thumb. They made a deal with the devil, the occupying force of Rome. And so they were oppressed religiously, they were also oppressed politically. Under the Roman rule, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were little more than a slave. 
And even given the specific rights that the Jews had in their local territory, they were still very little more than just slaves. So the cause of Christ was very clear. Jesus said from the very beginning of his ministry, I am here for the weak. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the poor. I'm here for the outcast. I'm here for the lonely. I'm here for the judged. I'm here for the condemned. I'm here for the people who were labeled sinners and unclean. I'm here for them. And so as Jesus is making his last trip to to Jerusalem, and he he knew it would be his last trip, his cause became extraordinarily clear. And and he made this point in uh, Jericho and, and Bethpage and Bethany and other cities as he was traveling down to Jerusalem. In one particular incident, the, uh, incident, there were throngs of people surrounding him. As was typical in, in the life and ministry of Jesus, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are surrounding him. And there was a man who couldn't quite see Jesus, so he climbed a tree. Who's this man that climbed the tree, Sunday school people? Zacchaeus, that wee little man in the tree that we sing about, was Zacchaeus. We think he was short because he had to climb a tree. I, I don't know, just fun, it makes a cool song out of it that I'm not going to sing. So he's up in a tree, and Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, we'll call him Zach. Zach, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And everybody was shocked. The crowds were stunned. Why were they stunned? Because Zacchaeus wasn't just your average, ordinary, poor, sick, outcast, oppressed Jew. They liked Jesus. If you were on the bottom of the, you know, the social chain of command here, you loved Jesus because you knew he was for you. But he looked at Zacchaeus and said, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. Zacchaeus was a wealthy, corrupt tax collector. He was a Jew paid by the Romans to steal from the Jews. So you can probably guess he's not getting a lot of dinner invitations. But Jesus looks at him and says, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And and they said essentially together, wait a minute, Jesus. We thought your cause was for the least, the last, and the lost. Jesus says, "My my cause is for everybody who was lost even a corrupt tax gatherer like Zacchaeus. So here's the reaction in Luke chapter 19. All the people saw his invitation to to Zacchaeus and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner? Absolutely. Jesus is for everyone who was lost, even a corrupt person who comes to the realization that he needs the forgiveness and grace of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes this point very clear in Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. For anybody who is lost, for anybody who knows they need something from God, they need provision, they need health, they need a friend, they need grace, they need forgiveness, they need a savior. For anybody who understands their need for God, anybody who says, you know what, I'm lost without God, Jesus Christ is for you. And Jesus makes it very clear, I am for anybody who is lost, rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Greek, Anybody who needs saving by God's grace, I'm here for them. That's his cause, to seek and save the lost. So his cause was very clear. The second element needed in a political rebellion is a very strong leader, a very strong leader. So immediately after Jesus says to Zach, I'm I'm gonna go to your house tonight, Jesus tells a story. Now it's a fairly confusing story, it's a parable, and sometimes we in the West have a hard time getting our heads around Eastern parables. So there's some confusion about this story. I'm gonna distill it down into a very simple two phrases that are embedded within the story. First, Jesus talks about a man of noble birth who went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's just about to be appointed king in Jerusalem? It's Jesus. 
He's telling a story about himself. There is a king who's going to go to a distant land to be appointed king. He's telling a story about himself. And then later in the story, he says, some hated him and said, we do not want this man to be our king. Jesus is making a simple point. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be appointed king illegally. I'm going to be appointed king, but many will hate that. And then he talks about there being violence afterwards. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to Jerusalem to be appointed king illegally. It's a political revolt that's a thumb in the eye of the religious corrupt and the politically corrupt of Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And tension now is rising. Anticipation is rising that the authority of Jesus Christ is going to come face to face like hitting a brick wall with the religious corrupt and the politically corrupt. There's going to be a clash in Jerusalem. And the entire traveling journey of Jesus to Jerusalem is setting up the tension that would take place in that city. Jesus then takes the next step. He tells his disciples, go to the next village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Now, Jesus just got done calling himself a king through storytelling. He just got done calling himself a king. Now he calls himself what? The Lord. Now, that's a powerful spiritual word. King is a powerful earthly word. Lord is a powerful spiritual word. So Jesus is using this word that could mean, could mean king, could mean master, could mean savior, could mean God. Jesus is really upping the ante. He's upping the tension with every phrase he intentionally speaks. He is raising the tension of this political rebellion that he's about to engage in uh, in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, he also says to his disciples, um, go find this colt, this young donkey. Now, when we think of a donkey here in the West, we don't have a lot of respect for that animal. Uh, we call the donkey a beast of what? Burden. If you Google donkey face right now, you're going to see some of the ugliest images you have ever seen in your life because donkey faces are hideously ugly. And, and so the entire internet is, is really centered around the ugliness of a donkey face. Um, they are ugly creatures. Um, in the West, we make fun of donkeys. In fact, I personally know a donkey. What's, a, what's, what's our, my mother-in-law's donkey's name? Is it cinnamon? What's the donkey's name? Do you, you don't remember? None of my whole family remembers. Anyway, we make fun of that donkey every time we go to Texas. Uh, it, it tries to hang around the cattle on the ranch, and the cattle make fun of the donkey. I mean, it's just this beast up there. It will never die. It just keeps hanging around, loitering around this farm. We make fun of donkeys. In fact, there's a few phrases in the West, ancient phrases in the West about donkeys. One of them is this. Donkeys eat their own bedding. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of strange. Well, keep in mind, it's an ancient Western phrase, making fun of donkeys. Bedding 2,000 years ago was made out of straw. Uh, donkeys will eat pretty much everything, including straw, so they'll eat their own bed and then sleep in mud, and they don't care. Now, I have two dogs that are as stupid as a donkey. We have uh, purchased bedding for them twice. And, and, you know, our dogs aren't inside dogs. Any pet we have is for some usefulness to better our lives. We do not exist to better our pets' lives. They exist to better our life. So every one of our pets has some usefulness in the Treadway house. So the dogs sleep in the garage. We've got a cat that chases mice. We've got chicken that give us eggs. And uh, when we're hungry, we snap its neck and fry it. And so um, pets are for our 
usefulness. Even the fish in the kitchen, it's to guard the kitchen, right? Every one of our pets has, has usefulness. Um, and so uh, we, we, we get our dog some bedding, thinking that we're being nice. You know, it's on sale at Costco. We can spend 29 bucks on our dog. We put it down. The next day, they've torn the whole thing to shreds. And then we just make them look at it for the rest of their lives. It's like, this is what you have done. And they sleep on concrete, and they look at us every night. Are you going to give me another bed? No, you cho- you've chosen. You've chosen. This is your path. You sleep on the concrete. That's the way it goes. And so this is the donkey from the Western eyes. From the Hebrew perspective, donkeys were very much respected. It was very, very normal for Hebrews to have donkeys and to cherish their donkeys. It was very normal for them to bring their donkeys inside their house on the bottom floor, and the family sleeps on the top floor. Now, the way smells rise, I don't think that would be a very good idea, but that's just the way it was during ancient uh, times in the Hebrew culture. They brought their donkeys inside their house, gave them the downstairs, treated them like pets, and they respected donkeys for three reasons. Number one, they're cheap. Uh, Hebrews were not particularly wealthy. In fact, they were very, very poor, so they could afford donkeys. You'd never see a Hebrew uh, riding around on a horse. They're always riding around on donkeys. Number two, they are very hard workers. And number three, they're very loyal. If you love on them and treat them with respect and spend lots of time with them, they will not be as stubborn as donkeys. They'll, they'll, they'll obey you, right? And so this was the reason why donkeys are very respected. So when we think of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we think, well, that's humiliating, right? Not to the Hebrew mind. To the Hebrew mind, it was very normal. Now, what wasn't normal is for people to ride into a city on any animal. That wasn't normal. Normally, what you would do is if you went into a city, and by the way, in Jerusalem, during the Passover feast, which is what Jesus and his disciples were going to, during the the Passover feast, there would have been hundreds of thousands of guests coming in and out of Jerusalem. And when they came in and out, you would walk in and out. If you had an animal, you would dismount and walk the animal into the city because it was understood if you were riding an animal of any kind into a city, you were making a bold statement. And so right around Palm Sunday, there were actually two people who entered the city on animals. One, you might know his name, was Pontius Pilate. Does that name ring a bell? The one who condemned Jesus to death. He's a Roman governor. And right around Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem. And I want to show you a little picture of how he might have ridden into Jerusalem. It was with full Roman regalia, stallions, the finest stallions given to a governor, He would have brought with him all of the pomp and circumstance of the Roman Empire, including treasures and art that displayed the power and the wonder and the beauty of the Roman Empire. He would have had with him upwards of 1,000 Roman soldiers. Why? Because it was a Passover feast for the Jews that celebrated their freedom from slavery in Egypt. So you know why Rome was nervous during Passover, right? Because Rome was the occupying force that enslaved Israel. And so during the Passover feast, Israel is celebrating freedom from Egypt. And so during Passover, it was already a very tense time. And so Pontius Pilate would have had a parade leading into Jerusalem with about 1,000 Roman soldiers to keep the peace, and he would have made a spectacle of it. Now, he came in through the grand west entrance of Jerusalem. Right around the same time, at the back east gate, there was another parade. And that parade was Jesus, riding in not on a beast of war or a beast of threats, but a beast of peace. And this donkey was a well-respected animal, but it symbolized peace 
and gentleness. So as Rome in the West was symbolizing war and violence and threats, from the East, Jesus was symbolizing peace and gentleness. And this was a clash of two parades, a clash of two kings, a clash of two distinct displays of two distinct kingdoms. One was power, war, threats, and terror, and the other was peace, gentleness, forgiveness, and grace. Both coming into the same city roughly at the same time, saying two entirely different things. So in any political rebellion, you have to have a cause. In any political rebellion, you have to have a leader who is Jesus Christ the King. And then finally, in any political rebellion, there will be a sacrifice. There will be a sacrifice. In every single one of the examples I gave of political rebellions in the past, there has been the head of a spear, a leader and his immediate band of followers who are usually killed for the cause. There's somebody who steps up and says, I will be the forerunner, I will be the first. I will confront the injustice that our people are facing and I will lay my own life down for the cause and that is precisely what Jesus did. Goes on to say this in Matthew 20, um, which is a parallel passage to Luke 19. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem towards the Palm Sunday event, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. In this passage, Jesus absolutely knows he's going to be arrested, tortured, and crucified in Jerusalem. He knows it. Why does he know it? Well, it could be that he got a direct revelation from the Heavenly Father, but it could also be that every single time he went to Jerusalem, they were threatening to kill him. Every single time he goes down to Jerusalem, he makes a big stir. Why? Because he's intentionally confronting religious corruption and intentionally confronting political corruption. Jesus made it very clear, I've come that they, everyone, might have life and have it to the full. And so in Jerusalem, he saw religious oppression keeping people down. He saw political oppression keeping people down. They're not able to live in the fullness of the life that God has designed for us. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem every time, creates a stir, creates enemies, and they want to kill him. And then Jesus sneaks away because it's not his time and goes back up north where he is very much celebrated. Jesus knows this is his final trip down to Jerusalem because he knows he's going to confront corruption square in the face and he's not gonna duck out. This is his time. This is the time for full forced rebellion against religious and political corruption and he will not leave. And he knows this is my time. I will be arrested. I will be tried, tortured, and put to death on a cross. He knew that full well and he went there anyway to create such a stir. Let me put it this way. The triumphal entry of Jesus, what we now call Palm Sunday, was a highly anticipated and calculated act of overt rebellion against every power of his time. And it would cost the leader, Jesus Christ himself, it would cost him his life. It was an intentional rebellion against religious leaders. In fact, when Jesus entered the uh, city of Jerusalem, the first thing he did was went right to the temple. In fact, the east gate was at the temple. He goes right through the east gate into the temple, and what does he do? He starts screaming at the religious leaders, you've made my father's house a den of what? Thieves. He turns over the tables, makes a whip, and starts thrashing people and animals and clears the whole place out. Don't you think this was an intentional rebellion against oppression? I mean, there's not much more intentional than that. 
couple of days later, he's back in the temple and he's calling the religious leaders broods of vipers who make sons of hell, who are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, screaming at them in the middle of the temple. This is an intentional, calculated, political rebellion against the corruption of the Jewish religious leaders. It was also an intentional rebellion against Roman oppression because Jesus himself was called king. In fact, when he was called king in this procession, which used the words Hosanna, which means save us, savior, they're crowning him king as he's riding into Jerusalem. The people who are nervous were saying, stop, stop, make your disciples stop. And Jesus says, if they stop praising me, the rocks will cry out. Jesus says, somebody is gonna praise me. Somebody or something is gonna crown me king because that's who I am to bring a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven to this earth, a kingdom of love and grace and mercy. Jesus says, praise towards me cannot and will not be stopped. That's Jesus' intentional rebellion against the Roman authorities. He had no problem declaring himself king of the Jews. In fact, that was the sign placed over the cross when he died. That was the declaration of Jesus when he was standing before Pontius Pilate. When Pilate says, are you a king? All he had to say was, oh no, there's a massive misunderstanding, right? When they were crowning me king at the Palm Sunday, I tried to calm him down. They he would have let Jesus go. Pilate did not want to crucify Christ. It was a bother. He wanted to let him go. But Jesus says, it is as you say. He had no problem intentionally confronting religious oppression and intentionally confronting political oppression. He did it overtly. He did it boldly. He did it in a well-orchestrated and well-crafted way. That was an intentional act of political rebellion. This was a planned, sophisticated, calculated political demonstration with a predetermined outcome. Jesus would die. Jesus would die. And five days following that triumphal entry, Jesus would be tried, tortured, whipped, nailed to a cross, and lifted up for the whole city to see. They were making a display of Jesus. They were making a display of his rebellion so that no one would do this again. What they didn't figure is that on the third day, that Sunday morning, he would rise again, which we celebrate next week. This was extraordinary political rebellion towards a very clear cause with a leader who put his life on the line. But there was one other group of people that also put their lives on the line. These were the people that were following Jesus Christ. These were the people who were um, waving the palm branches and laying down their cloaks. In fact, later in Luke chapter 19, verse 36 through 38, it says this about another set of heroes here. As Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. And this is what they sung. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are the people who are praising Jesus Christ. By the hundreds, probably by the thousands. Waving palm branches to, to symbolize a king is coming. And laying down their cloaks, which symbolizes their allegiance to Jesus. Their allegiance to a new king. You see the issue with that? Here they are publicly swearing allegiance to a brand new king. When they laid their cloaks down before Jesus, they were risking their own lives. In fact, I, I brought a cloak with me. I actually made it. Isn't this pretty cool? This shows my sewing skills. I have nunchuck skills and sewing skills. 
So here's a, a first century cloak. Um, if it was warm outside, you'd wear it like this because not only was it uh, to keep you protected from the elements, but it was also very useful. It was a very useful tool. Uh, when it became uh, colder, let's say at night, you would simply untie the cloak and you would use it as a jacket, something to protect you from the elements. And so it would keep you warm. Several times a day, Jews would go to prayer. And when Jews went to prayer, they would put the cloak over their head and they would pray with their cloak over their head as a sign of respect to God. Um, if you were poor, you would use this also as your bedding. You couldn't afford both a cloak and bedding, and so this would be your bedding at night. Could be a blanket, could be a pillow. So this was very, very useful. It was also the primary way you identified yourself. So if you were poor, if you were a poor Hebrew, um, you could only afford linen, very cheap linen. And so if you had a linen cloak, which is about what this is, if you had a linen cloak, everybody would know, okay, you're in the lower class, you're poor, you can't afford anything else. Uh, you would have some, some sympathy. Uh, people might also know by your cloak what you do for a living. There would be markings, let's say, if you were working with metal or wood or a farmer or a shepherd, it would be very clear by your cloak, by your um, outer garment, who you were and what you did. If you were, say, a middle-class person who perhaps owned a shop, you could afford wool. And so if your cloak was a, a wool cloak, you would be known as somebody who had some means. You might have a house of your own. You might have a little shop. If there was some design on your wool cloak, you would be known as somebody who has a little more wealth. Your cloak spoke volumes in terms of who you were. If you were a Roman citizen, your cloak would be the color of crimson, which was the color of Rome. If you were royalty, the color of your cloak would be what? purple. It would identify who you are, and that's why they wrapped Jesus in a purple cloak after they whipped him 40 times, mocking him. You're the king, right? You're the king. Well, save yourself. If you can't save yourself from this torture, how can you save the people of this world? And they put a purple cloak, a purple tunic on him to mock him. So those cloaks meant everything to people. It was who they were. And so when these followers of Jesus Christ took their cloaks and laid them in front of the donkey that carried Jesus. It was a sign of humility. It was both figuratively and literally laying their lives down before Christ. It was figurative in that when they laid their cloak, it was a symbol of who they were, and they were laying their lives before Christ in humility. All of who I am is only worth some covering for the feet of the donkey that the Savior is riding on. So it was a sign of extreme humility all I am is just dust for the beast that was carrying the Savior to walk upon. And it was a sign of deep reverence towards Christ the Savior. So it was very uh, figuratively laying down their lives. But it was also very literally laying down their lives. Because as they laid their cloak down before Jesus in public, they very well could have been writing their own death sentence. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. A king who would be crucified. And so everyone who laid down their cloak was very publicly saying, I'm with him. And Rome was world famous for not only killing the leader of a rebellion, but every single person who followed that leader. So to me, the hero of this story and the hero of this rebellion is not just Jesus, but every one of his disciples who laid their cloak at his feet. Now this is important for us, I think, to recognize as well. Easter week is a very familiar week. The Easter stories are very familiar. Palm Sunday is very familiar. And sometimes it can be so familiar to us that it loses its punch. 
We also don't live in a world that is um, oppressing people the way the religious leaders of the time of Christ did or the Roman Empire. So sometimes we can get complacent about the cause of Christ and there's nothing really on the line. You know, if we're following Jesus Christ, there's nothing really on the line. If you're a Christ follower in Egypt, that's a different story. Um, just this morning, there were two bombs in Christian churches in Egypt that killed dozens and dozens of people during Palm Sunday services. There's no such threat like that here with us. And so there's not that moment where we have to either sign on for this rebellion or cower away. We don't have that kind of mentality here. And so we can have a very casual relationship with Jesus and a very casual relationship with his church. And that's okay, I'm not downing that. Believe me, I'd rather live in the Disneyland of Temecula than be a Coptic Christian in Egypt or a Christian in northern uh, Iraq or in Syria right now, believe me, right? I thank God for our freedom and thank God uh, for our prosperity here. And I wouldn't wanna raise my family in any other place, right? I'm grateful for that. But what that means is there's a bit of a softness in our faith, I think. There's a bit of a softness there because we're never facing that moment. Am I gonna keep this cloak for myself Am I going to give my allegiance to something that's easy, or am I going to take a stand publicly and say, my life belongs to Jesus Christ? He's my God. He's my master. He's my king, and he's my Lord, and I follow him. I don't follow him with a half heart. I don't follow him casually. I don't follow him lazily, which is so easy for us, right? It's just easy and natural for us to be sort of casual followers of Christ. And I'm not downing that. I'm not saying that's, e that's evil. I'm just saying that's just the way it is for us. We've never had that laying down of a cloak moment. And so it's a little more difficult for us to have this sort of all-in faith when there's not this all-in choice to be made. And, and so as we close, I just want us to consider what it might be like, and I don't know what the answer is for you, and I'm discovering what the answer is for me and, and our family, is what does it mean to lay down your tunic before Jesus? What does it mean to say, I'm all in with him? I'm not a casual observer. I'm all in with him. And I'm all in with his cause. If Jesus came to seek and save the lost, has there been a time in our life where we lay down our identity before Jesus and say, Jesus, I am all in with your cause to seek and save the lost. I want to do what you did. I don't want to keep my cloak for myself and just seek my possessions and my well-being and my health and my happiness and my will and my way and my comfort, right? It's so easy for us to do that. God, I want to lay that down. And I don't know, again, what that means for you. But to lay it down and to say, I follow Jesus. My saving grace is found only in him. My forgiveness is only in him. My standing with God is only in Christ. I'm not driven by guilt or shame anymore. Because of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, on that Friday after Palm Sunday, he is paying the price on the cross, not just for his act of political rebellion, but he's on the cross paying for my rebellion and your rebellion against God. He is there to pay for the sins of the world on the cross. He did that to make me right with God, to declare me perfect before God, to bear my sins, every sin I've ever committed, am committing, or will commit, he paid for on the cross. He did that as a sign of incredible love for me, an incredible love for us. And so when we lay down our tunic, we say, I rely only on Jesus Christ and his grace to forgive me, not on religion, not on works, not on my effort, but only by his grace. But when we lay down our tunic before Jesus, we also say, you know what, it's not just about his grace given to me, it's about his cause that I now take. 
It's about his cause that I now live out. And God, would you help me to live in a way that continues the cause of Christ to seek and save that which was lost? To look at life not just in terms of how it impacts me and my comfort and my way, but where are people hurting and I wanna go to those folks? Where are people struggling and I wanna go to those folks? I can't tell you how thrilled I am that we are mobilizing our young people all over this world. I mean, to have upwards of, of, of 55 high school students decide to spend their spring break building 11 houses for people who live on the outskirts of a dump, to have a handful of young women go to Ethiopia, some of the northern parts of Ethiopia where Islam and Christianity meet, and to minister to children there to make sure they know the love of God and have a meal to eat. I mean, this is the kind of mentality that lays our cloak down before Jesus and says, I am going to receive your grace and enjoy your grace, but God, would you help me to give that away to the least, the last, and the lost? I'm gonna close in prayer, and as I do, I want us to think about what it might mean to lay our cloak down before Jesus. And for some of you, maybe today might be very significant. Some of you today might go from a casual observer of Christ or somebody who goes to church every once in a while, you know, because it's kind of a good thing to do and, and, and when it's convenient, and I'm not down on all this, this is not a guilt trip, it's just to say that this is serious stuff. Jesus committed himself and his disciples to a political rebellion that was radical, a radical political rebellion that cost he and his disciples absolutely everything. And our faith can be so casual, it's understandable. But is there a point in our lives when we say, you know what, not anymore, not anymore. This faith will not be a casual faith. The way I live my life will not be casually lived. And my family of faith here at Rancho will not be a casual gathering. We're involved in some very serious things to bring the grace of God to the ends of the earth. Let's sign up for that. Let's lay our clothes before Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank you that we can take perhaps a fresh look at, at this Palm Sunday event and perhaps be moved by it in a very unique way if we can somehow capture the feel and the emotion and the, and the um, intensity and the tension of what Jesus did on that day in a very calculated way as the kingdom of heaven confronted head on the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of political corruption and the kingdoms of religious corruption that keep people enslaved to guilt and fear and shame and lostness that keep poor people poor, sick people neglected, that label people as sinners and rejected and unclean and outcast. God, maybe in this very moment, we would have this imagery of, of watching Jesus, the Lord and the King, riding in on a donkey, a, burden, a beast of burden, an animal of peace and gentleness, coming in through the humble east gate with thousands of people singing praise to the King, praise to our God, waving palm branches and laying our cloaks down. And God is asking ourselves a very simple question. Would we keep our cloak to ourselves and pick the easy path, the comfortable path for us? Or would we take a very risky and bold step of being a part of the rebellion that Jesus started and lay our cloak down on the dust? Not having any idea what that means, but beginning with that gesture that says, my life is not about me. It's not about my prosperity or my comfort. 
My life is about receiving the unconditional grace that comes through Jesus Christ, our King, freely given by the full measure of love he displayed on the cross as he lays his life down to pay for the sins of the world, to pay for my sins and our sins, and to rise again from the dead in victory so that we know that our failures do not define us, your grace defines us, and you define us as perfect. That death does not define us and death will not hold us. There is new life and eternal life here and to come in Christ alone. So God, we lay our cloak down to receive the grace that comes through Christ, and we lay our cloak down to say to the world, I'm with him. I follow Christ. I want my life to matter for the cause of Christ. I want to do my part to seek and save people who are lost. I want to honor him by advancing his cause in all the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.